The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host... Grace Gawler. Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Bruce Whelan. He's a specialist GP and he's a graduate of the University of Queensland School of Medicine back in 1967. And uh, Dr. Whelan's been in general practice since 1971. Today we're going to look at how to navigate the cancer maze with the help of your general practitioner. We're going to be looking at cancer practice, emotional support, and the role of the GP. Now, you may have heard Dr. Whelan on the show before. I did an interview with him talking about his life, spinning gold from straw, how trauma transformed a doctor's life and practice. So here's someone who has really worked at the cold face of trauma, um, a lot of uh, grief work, counselling, mental health, pain management. So we're going to be asking him today to go through the role of the GP and how that could be improved and also how you can get the services of a GP to meet your needs. And I think the need is greater now for patients and families um, than ever before and we'll also be talking about a new model of care. Now, Bruce has had a very eclectic background, as you can imagine. He's worked in challenging rural Australia practice environments, including Indigenous health. And now, with 47 years' experience, I believe, his ethic is treating the whole person. And he uses the best of modern psychology, general psychiatry, in combination with modern medicine, and more recently embracing complementary therapies as well. He had personal involvement with the Bali bombings in 2002 and that made a huge impact on his life and his practice, leading to his interest in psychiatry. He has worked in drug addiction medicine and, as I said before, pain management issues and issues related to cancer medicine. He has been involved with medical students in a teaching capacity um, as a professor at Bond and Griffith Medical Schools on the Gold Coast in Australia. He has a deep and inquiring mind, a sharp differential diagnosis skill ability, and his experience as a GP who understands his patient's grief and trauma is invaluable. He lives on a yacht, he loves fishing, oil painting, classical music, and life itself. Big welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you, Grace. Um, you've been on the show before, and this time we're going to look at actually the role of a GP. Uh, last time we had a look at your life. 
Um, I'd like you to talk about the role of the GP, in particular in the life of a cancer patient. Consider the GP is the person who, ideally, should be the person coordinating all aspects of care involved as much as possible. And this may mean that some GPs are going to have to actually subspecialize in the management of cancer patients, because not all GPs are interested in, in dealing with cancer patients. Mm -hmm. But I suppose to start off with, it's important that when a patient presents to the GP and starts telling them their, their symptoms, that he listens and spends time in listening to what they're telling him. Because patients know about their bodies, and if something's wrong, um, they will usually have an idea as to what is happening. Having listened to the patient, a doctor should have in his list of differential diagnoses the possibilities, somewhere there, the possibility that this could be a cancer, right? a malignancy mm -hmm. that's causing these symptoms. Not often, but every so often. And consequently, then the next step is to investigate these symptoms appropriately. Now, using whatever modality is required, CAT scans, MRIs, etc., um, blood tests, to exclude a cancer. And if it shows up that there is a possibility of a cancer there, then once again, spend time and explain to the patient quietly, slowly, gently about the possibilities um, of what this could be. Um, and what options there may be. And then refer appropriately to somebody who can help them. Now this may be um, a surgeon, an oncologist. Um, also, in this referral process, the, it, I think having worked with you for some time now, that a complementary therapist who uses evidence-based complementary therapies and is also aware of therapies that are available overseas that are not available in Australia, is also a person who should be included in the team. And thus I've found that when we have done our joint consultations, the major benefit that's being involved in actually having these sorts of consultations. Mm. Mm, excellent. So um, can you see any areas that could be improved in the role of the GP as it currently stands with cancer patients? You've, you've touched on a few there. Mm. Um, what do you think could be improved and, and, and improved sort of easily? Well, as I said, it is possible GPs could actually upskill themselves to specialise in cancer management. Mm -hmm. um, ideally in Australia, there needs to be a change to the fee system, which is based on five-minute, one-second consultations where the doctor is rewarded much more if he doesn't spend very much time with a patient. Also, better education is required, and this will start in medical schools, and I've actually been a professor at two medical schools for a couple of years, and I know that during that time, very little time was spent in this area. Mm -hmm. So education of students, and also education of GPs, um, the um, evenings that GPs can go to in the appropriate um, management of cancer, the appropriate complementary therapies, 
and I'm not meaning alternative therapies, which I will talk about later. No. I'm talking about genuine complementary therapies, education in this area. That's where there could be some significant improvements. Okay, so we're talking about education. Um, if we move that into education as concerns the GP's role with the patient, so um, what do you think about GPs as patient educators? Well, ideally, this is one of their main roles. Ideally, yeah. Ideally. Should because be. <laughs> because a well-educated patient is a person who will manage their disease well. And so one of the primary roles of the GP is in education. Mm. Once again, this takes time. And the GP being interested in the education of the patient had always found that well-educated patients do much better than the ones who are not. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. Hmm. So um, you've already talked really about the improvements that could be made in this area. So how about we go to looking at the area of early diagnosis in cancer? And in particular, the, um, the sort of ground roots role that the GP can play in that scenario. We've talked about the cancer patient coming in and a fresh diagnosis. What about someone who's been a cancer patient for some time and who comes in to um, your consulting room? What role can you play in that scenario? In that situation, it's very important that you have, that the patient brings with them all the history and all the evidence of what has been done. Mm -hmm. And probably the reason they're coming to see you is because they're probably possibly not happy about quite how they've been managed, right? Or the person who's been looking after them, they haven't felt, haven't had good rapport with, right? So they need to, um, they'll be coming to you be, in a way for a second opinion. And I think the GPs should be, feel comfortable in referring people off for a second opinion. <laughs> Just as an example, I had my daughter ring me last night about my granddaughter who has a squint in her eye. And she went to the local public hospital and the a young doctor there said, oh, she actually has a squint in both eyes, so I'll do both eyes at the same time and so my daughter rang me up and said dad I'm not real happy about having both eyes done at the same time I said well we need a second opinion don't we mm -hmm. <laughs> I said so I'm going away sailing for six weeks in the Greek island so we're going to put everything off and when you come back then I'm going to refer to somebody who specializes in squint surgery that I know and get their opinion mm. as to whether it's a good idea to have right? and so this second opinion I think is so important because it gives the patient reassurance that the path they're following is the correct path that yep, should be going yep. down. And of course it's part of the patient's education, isn't it, that they have the right to request a second opinion. A lot of patients don't believe that they have. Yeah, patient, yeah to some degree patients have been taught that the doctor is always right. Yes. Um, and sometimes that is not so and sometimes <laughs> a second opinion is required. Um, yeah. yeah. As I, as I said, unfortunately, a lot of five-minute consultations are going on in Australia, and quite often a lot of things are missed. And so people really have to actually, you know, be their best adv own advisor in deciding what to do and getting a second opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce, do you have any stories around the themes we've been talking about? You've mentioned a couple of things, but 
from your years in practice, which I believe is now something <coughs> like 45 years in practice. Yeah, like so a lot of experience. Yeah, um, 40, 47. 47, okay. Um, so do you have any stories around the theme and particularly early diagnosis in cancer and someone seeing, say, a GP in that scenario occurring? I think people learn by stories really well. Yes, and this is a story that I told when I was teaching my medical students, especially in first year, and I entitled it Stick to Your Guns. And it's where I was a young GP doing a locum, it was in 1970, I'd only been out three years, and I was doing a locum in a country town, and this person came in, in their 50s, and they had paralysis in their hand. So I referred them off to Brisbane, which was quite a big trip, to the specialist who taught me neurology, and he returned, he returned the patient to me saying, oh no, he was just basically a punch-drunk boxer and his brain was going off a bit. Uh, remember, however, at this time, we did not have CAT scans. We did not have MRIs. All we had was a skull X-ray and an EEG, and the diagnosis was made on the symptoms, mm -hmm. on what's called localising signs. Two months later, <laughs> I was back in this practice doing a locum, and he comes back in again. And, <laughs> however... No longer is just his hand paralysed, his whole arm is paralysed. There's been extension of his symptomatology. So I referred him back once again down to Brisbane to the specialist who once again sent him back to me and said, did you not read my first letter that this guy is a punch-drunk boxer? <laughs> I said, hmm, OK. Two months later, I'm there again. At this stage, his whole arm is paralysed and his leg is starting to get paralysed too. So... I think, no, this is a tumour, and referred him back to Brisbane where he had quite a sizable tumour removed. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, this story I tell because, remember, the person who, who didn't agree with me was the person who taught me everything I should know about this area. So that's one. Um, another one um, was the patient who came and saw me and had some abdominal symptoms um, and so I did a rectal examination and I thought I could feel just right at the right at the tip of my finger I thought I could feel something that wasn't right polyp or something like that so I referred this patient to who I considered to be the best gastroenterologist around and he sent him back to me saying there's nothing wrong I then saw the patient again I then examined them and did another rectal examination and I still felt that I could feel something there and so I referred them to another specialist who then diagnosed that they had a rectal tumour, um, um, a very high rectal tumour, that had been missed in the process of the, the previous doctor. And so once again, stick to your guns. <laughs> stories. <laughs> stick right? to your guns. And uh, once again, the, the use of the GP, I think, in this realm is, is so understated and perhaps underutilised. Yes, I believe as, so. As we said yeah, earlier. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Bruce, we're coming to the end of our first session on um, navigating the cancer maze, so okay. we're going to take a break and come back. And I'd like to talk about choice of treatments in cancer patients, what that actually means to you in, in your practice. So we'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. Mm -hmm. 
Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Today I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Whelan, who's a GP of some 47 years, he's just told me, and we are talking about the role of the GP in cancer patients, if you have just joined us today. Um, Bruce, can we talk about choice of treatment in terms of cancer patients? Um, This is a, a point that's often bandied about. People say, well, everyone has the right to choose whatever treatment that they have um, and my, my actual thoughts on this myself is that people have to be correctly informed in order to know what to choose. I'd like to hear what you have to say on that subject. This is a two-edged sword really in looking at this because superficially the statement is correct that each individual has to take responsibility for themselves mm-hmm. right, and choose the direction they're going in. However, they must be well informed. And what I'm finding (laughs) in the last 15, 20 years perhaps um, 
is that people are now um, considering themselves wise as doctors for themselves and also going on Mr. Google. There's a massive amount of Googling going on with <laughs> symptoms. Mm -hmm. And my comment to that is that a person who has themselves and Mr. Google as the person who decides treatment and is effectively the doctor has a fool twice over as a doctor. Okay. That's, that's my <laughs> that says it all, really. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, and when I prescribe recently, when I when I prescribe medications, um, people will Google the side effect profiles. Now, if you Google the side effect profile of ordinary old paracetamol or the side effect profile of aspirin, nobody would take either. Mm. Right? And yet, they're such effective drugs because remember anything that will be appearing on Google will tend to have a negative slant on things. There are things that commonly occur as side effects with drugs, and there are things that very rarely occur. And I find this is a major problem nowadays, that appropriate treatment is not taken because a person has gone and Googled something. Yeah, And this is a real problem yep. in people making a choice for themselves. Um, um, they're coming to me as a specialist in the area, right? And as I said, I have 47 years of experience. And I am I would describe a very conservative doctor. <laughs> Interesting that I say I'm conservative and yet I, I work with complementary therapies because mm. um, I found it to be effective. Um, but... Yeah, and I'm not in the uh, you know I'm not in the habit of prescribing drugs in high dosages and lots of them and that sort of thing. I try to use the least right at the lowest possible dose mm -hmm. in treating all conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I've just endorsed what you said. I've recently had a tooth abscess and um, I took <coughs> antibiotics for it as prescribed by the dentist. And uh, actually, after I'd taken the course of antibiotics, I had a peek on Google to see what the side effects were. And you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> I survived through those antibiotics, and in fact, you know, I'm in, I'm in relatively good shape because of them, but if I'd actually looked and taken all of those side effects to heart, I probably would not have taken that particular antibiotic. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we, I learn lessons for myself all the time in that. So the message is, listen to the qualified professional and don't Google. Good message. Okay. Good message. Um... Do you believe that GPs could influence this current swell of patients that we've been talking about, the Google lookers and the, the people who listen to the lady next door or the person in the health food store? Um, I think there's got to be a role here for GPs to uh, sort of be the stopgap between this process of people just running willy-nilly. Yes, very much so. Um, it fits in with the role of the GP as the educator mm -hmm. and the GP being knowledgeable, uh, once again, as I said, about evidence-based complementary therapies and also being quite knowledgeable about the alternative natural inverted comma therapies, which do not work, and actually explaining to the patient and spending time and listening to what they have to say and explaining to them about how in reality, in real life, these alternative natural therapies, which usually cost an awful lot of money and involve very complex diets and things like that, do not work. 
in curing their cancer. Now, it may be true that what we put in our mouths during our lifetime <laughs> will make a difference as to how long we're going to survive. Mm. That's true, especially the Mediterranean diet with respect to heart disease and things like that. Um, but um, so many of these fads and things, I see it as people may try to make money out of a particular group of people that are very disadvantaged because of their illness. And I also see that usually the more money it costs, the more likely it is to be a rat bag nonsense thing that mm. does not work. Yeah, I've regularly had people in my practice <coughs> that have spent $100,000, $120,000 in a year mm. on infusions and, and supplements and non-evidence-based things. And when yeah. they've actually then needed money for real treatment, they haven't had it because it's all gone on the other mm. alternative non-evidence-based things. Yeah. I see your next question is, what's your opinion on complementary therapies as part of cancer treatment? And I suppose the answer to that is that, yes, I very much believe so. And it's quite interesting, of, over the, especially over the last few years as I've become more interested in this field, to see things that have been considered to be outside of mainstream medicine and complementary now actually being examined in detail with double-blind controlled trials um, and being shown to be of significant benefit, and I have personal uh, experience with that, is that recently diagnosed with a supposedly not non-life-threatening, unless I live a long time, form of prostate cancer, very mild, um, and most people with this mild prostate cancer don't die of it, they die of something else. And um, becoming aware that Boswellia, frankincense, um, in an article and that came from America <coughs> on a site where they specialised in the treatment of prostate cancer, that they tried Boswellia and it certainly had a major effect on killing prostate cancer cells and also stopping the blood vessels that they form. It has an anti-angiogenesis effect. So I'm happily taking Boswellia for myself, mm. which is a complementary medicine, and I don't think most doctors would know about that. I don't think they would either. And it has very few contraindications, actually, with other medicines as well. Yeah. So it's one of the real advantages it had, of it. No, uh, yeah, it had no side effects at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. excellent. Um, we've talked about a few other patient stories. <coughs> have you seen examples of patients who have not taken the balanced approach to their treatment and and what their outcomes have been? Yeah, this is a patient I saw. First one I talk about, somebody I saw, or must have been a couple of years ago, um, referred by you prior to travelling over to, to Hullwang in Germany. And he was a patient who'd been diagnosed with a, a um, squamous cell carcinoma on his left tonsil. And it was the surgeon said that he required surgery and that would involve removing part of his jaw, etc. So he only saw this person once, he tells me, and that terrified him so much that he chose to do absolutely nothing for a whole year. Mm. And when I saw him, he had glands the size of eggs from secondaries from this cancer on both sides of his, of his neck. Right? And then presented to Grace and me um, <laughs> requesting to be cured. 
And unfortunately, it was well past that time mm. that when that could be done. And so he'd chosen to do nothing. Right? He'd, he'd followed all lots of different diets, right? <laughs> done all things like that. And he'd spent an absolutely f a fortune on natural therapists yeah, that offered him alternative therapies that didn't work. When a simple surgical procedure done a year previously would probably have totally cured the lesion. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a good example, that one. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, just in that light, yesterday I was in a cafe here locally and a lady came up to me. She was one of my patients five years ago and had identically what this young man had had. And she'd had radiation, she'd had follow-up chemotherapy, and I gave her all the supportive care during that. Hmm. Um, she's had part of her tongue removed um, in that process. She's learned to speak again. She has a life. She's happy. She has weight on, yeah, and yeah. she says life's wonderful, and she's just passed her five-year all clear. Yeah. I have another patient that I still see, and this is six years later, when I diagnosed his squamous cell carcinoma of his tonsil. Mm. And he had surgery, and it was, had to be really very extensive. And he did have problems for the next couple of years with his jaw, etc. But his cancer is totally cured. Right? And he's well now. And yeah. these are the ones we don't tend to hear about. They don't get in the popular press. Oh, no. No, no the successes you don't hear about. So yeah. <laughs> and they're actually successes of this beautiful um, bridging of complementary and conventional medicine hmm. uh, quite the, often. The, the other patient that comes to mind is the, the one I actually, when I went over to Hulvang to the clinic, um, and this is a patient who had been diagnosed with breast cancer, which, from the story may well have been curable just by simple lumpectomy in the early days when it was first diagnosed. However, she used black cell and a couple of years later she still had a large fungating breast tumour the size of an orange mm. which was on the skin and still using black cell. Yeah. And ex once again expecting a miraculous cure at this stage by going to Germany. Mm, yeah. yeah, and mm. if you don't know what black salve is, folks, if you haven't listened to the show before, do check out grayscallermedia.com. If you type black salve into the search, you will find out what it is and why you shouldn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've come to the end of a second session now of Navigating the Cancer Maze, and we're going to come back with Dr. Bruce Whelan, and we're going to talk about the psychological aspects of cancer as well as pain and cancer. So don't go away, we'll be right back. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Scholar from the Grace Scholar Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Gray Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.grayscholarinstitute.com or email institute at grayscholar.com. 
Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G dash clinic dot com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at one 866 472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Back again on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today speaking with Dr. Bruce Whelan, if you've just joined us on the show. Um, psychological care in cancer patients, uh, Bruce. How important do you think the psychology component of dealing with cancer is as they navigate this ever-changing, ever-complex cancer maze? Well, when a patient is given the diagnosis that they have cancer, they usually experience to some degree an epiphany of a total rethinking of their life and what their plans for the future have been and the fact that they may not see out those plans for their future. And they're going to have to develop a different approach to their lives because their lifespan may well be shortened. It may not be, but it may well be significantly. Mm. So it has horrific mental health consequences for the person. People vary as to their ability to yeah, be resilient. And people fall in the spectrum between having very little resilience whatsoever to change to those people who cope with change very well. Right? Um, and having somebody on the team, and we haven't talked much about this, about the team approach, um, having somebody on the team who is looking after the person with cancer. And that would ideally be a psychologist who has training in the management of patients with cancer or a complementary therapist who is skilled, such as yourself, in helping these people navigate this 
major change that's occurred to them. And the other thing I'd say on this is that we know, we know for sure now, once again, evidence-based from laboratory studies, that having a positive attitude in life influences your immune system and also influences your response to pain. And helping these people to gain a more positive attitude towards their lives will actually improve the chances of their actually having a successful outcome. Because basically cancer is just a battle between itself and the immune system. And virtually all the drugs we use are attempting to enlist the immune system in destroying the cancer cells. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And certainly I know as people go through this maze and more and more treatments are added in, more and more their psychology has to shift and adapt to those treatments mm. because things are going to change. And quite often people say, I want to get back to the way I was before cancer. <coughs> Isn't going to happen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly it yeah. <laughs> my being told that I have a very mild prostatic cancer was a real epiphany for me at 70 years of age. And so I had thought I might work through till 75 or 80, but so perhaps I might just work through till about 73 <laughs> <laughs> and have more years for playing. <laughs> and, and, and as I'm doing, going sailing in the Greek islands for six weeks on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> mm, sounds like a good idea. Um, Bruce, we've had you on the show before um, talking about your own story of um, spinning gold from straw, we actually called the episode. So if anyone wants to go back and have a look at that, check it out. Um, you're quite a resilient coper in many ways because you've had many traumas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can you share with our listeners just a little bit about how, uh, just briefly, because they can go back and listen to the story, but just briefly how your own life story has kind of crafted you into into this ability to think like this be like this okay talk about your prostate yeah. cancer like this yeah um basically a lot of these things it's almost as if you have you develop post-traumatic stress disorder in response to these events in your life mm -hmm. right okay usually it's said to be a ptsd follows something visual that you see or hear and that sort of thing but, all, but actually, somebody saying you have cancer, right, is a very traumatic experience for somebody. And it is now recognized that with good counseling, there is a concept called post-traumatic growth. A Scottish researcher did some research and found that with good counseling, 70% of people experience post-traumatic growth in that after the experience, um, these people actually evolved into they changed in a very positive way in their lives in their approach to life in the, their relationships with people and what they were doing with their lives and they experienced this post-traumatic growth um, and this is something which would be ideal if this is could happen with a patient who has cancer and it may be that even if the cancer is not curable at the time and the time span is going to be two or three years. A person can still ma make major life changes with good psychological counselling so that those last two or three years of their life are very positive ones, right? And they can contribute a lot to helping others as well. 
that's, that's, that's where I find a lot of my patients. Um, for example, I, I've worked in a, um, I've had a clinic where I've looked after 100 past heroin addicts. And those who've done really well, a lot of them have actually gone, gone and done training in psychology right? <laughs> and degrees wow. in helping others with the same problem and actually become counsellors themselves. And that's a good example of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like uh, Carl Jung talked about wounded healers, huh? Yeah, that's right. We <laughs> talked about that last time. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, thanks for that. I think that was very uh, insightful. Um, I'd like to talk about um, whether conventional or complementary <coughs> or even in alternative <coughs> medicine. Even in alternative medicine, compliance um, seems to be a really big issue. Um, getting patients to comply with the treatments that they're prescribed. Um, Insights, this, please. This applies to the whole of medicine. It's found that on average, certainly thought to be between 30 and 40% of patients are totally compliant and the rest are non-compliant with their treatments. It's quite a lot, isn't it, that aren't? Yeah. That's right, that's 60-70%. <laughs> um, and that has to do with all forms of treatment and since I work in the area of mental health, also with respect to people taking their medications for their mental health problems. I find that the better educated the patient is and the closer follow-up they have, and having the ability to have close follow-up with the doctor, um, which in Australia with psychiatrists, they see their patients on average once a month or once every two months. Now, my mental health patients, I'll see weekly, fortnightly, mm -hmm. yeah, very often for long periods of time uh, in a supportive role. And by and I, I, when they make mistakes in stopping their medication, I use that as an opportunity for them to learn and teach them the mistake they've made so they don't do it again. So it's actually spending time with people that mm. makes the big difference in educating people about the consequences of non-compliance with treatment because compliance is so important. Yeah. 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 We need to get to some of our politicians to uh, get them to hear these things to make some changes. <laughs> and the other, the other thought I had was that the, the journey for, for the, <laughs> that your patient goes on is not only their journey, it's also the doctor's journey because he actually experiences feelings in response to what's happening to his patient. And that's why we're not all suited to doing this type of work. Mm. And it's okay if GPs choose not to be involved in this. But there will be people who will be really interested, and they're the people who should be, as I said, almost subspecialists in this area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they could refer on, yes, to other GPs? Well, G who... GPs who choose not to do this work yeah. should in their minds, just the same as they have a list in their head of the, the eye specialist, the surgeon you know, that they, they, they normally refer to, there should be somebody that is a GP that they feel comfortable to refer to. That does happen with me. People refer to me because I sort of subspecialize um, in, in this work, in cancer work, and I also subspecialize in mental health and addictions and chronic pain management, which is another story. Mm -hmm. In your peers, um, are there many other people like you? Unfortunately, 
here on the Gold Coast? The answer is no, no. At a meeting <laughs> several months ago, um, it was put on by a drug company to do with an antidepressant they were promoting, which is very good, one of the new ones. Um, I met a doctor there who was sitting opposite me at the table, and it wasn't very long before we, we had established really good rapport, and I realised he was very, he had a mindset very similar to mine, right? and he had a very caring attitude towards patients. Right? He was also interested in, in mental health problems and addictions and pain management, um, and so while I'm taking my six weeks break, <laughs> my receptionist <laughs> had have his name and address and phone number, um, and I've given my patients his contact details, right? And he will be following up my patients that need to be followed up in the next six weeks. I saw an alcoholic last night for the first time. I've been an alcoholic for 20 years, from the age of 25 to 45. Um, <laughs> it was one of my last patients. <laughs> I referred to him <coughs> as, a, as a first consult. And so um, I commenced her on treatment and spent, spent at least an hour with her, as I usually do. And so she has to see him next week for follow-up. So we need to have GPs that are that specialise in different areas. Yeah, uh, new model. A, a new, new model. A new model, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I can't believe it, but we've come to the end of our third session on navigating the cancer maze. Okay. So uh, we'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit about pain and a couple of extra stories from Dr. Bruce Whelan before he heads off to sail in the Greek islands. <laughs> How good is that? Don't go away. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Holvung Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.holvung-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the Cancer Maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegollar.com. 
are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host, and today speaking with Dr. Bruce Whelan. If you've just tuned in, be sure to have a listen to the rest of the show. I think you'll find there's a lot of very good information there. Um, Bruce, we're going to talk about pain management, and in particular the GP's role in pain management, because pain tends to be one of those things that becomes the disease in fact it takes the attention and the energy of the patient and yet so many patients don't do anything about pain because they're scared of pharmaceuticals yeah this is a this is a big problem um, to do with any form of pain that is quite severe um, a large percentage of GPS are terrified of prescribing opiates and I was in a practice for three years one stage going back a few years, and they had a big sign on the front of the desk, this practice prescribes no opiates. And that policy actually applied to cancer patients too. Um, And I couldn't believe it because I was prescribing opiates for chronic pain. Um, My patients were not treated well there. Um, And this is actually a very common experience. And I think it's mainly that GPs are not trained in the use of opiates. it doesn't take all that long to get to know how to use them and be aware of them and the consequences because when you prescribe opiates for pain the person then has a second problem which is the potential for opiate addiction um, not everybody gets that the the addiction mm-hmm. consequences um, and it usually becomes obvious within a month or so because the person who is who is actually having the addictive component will be wanting to increase dose all the time mm-hmm. or saying I've had to take more etc um, and one of the strange things about opiates is there, there comes a level at which the relief of pain the degree of relief of pain plateaus out and as you increase the dose the actual pain increases right. and a lot of GPs are not even aware of that so education of GPs in the use of opiates appropriately right? um, Yes, they are used in our community inappropriately. Now, heroin being the, the worst of them, and OxyContin, which is hillbilly heroin, which is prescribed <laughs> often, and young doctors in hospitals prescribe an awful lot of this for their patients and don't, don't seem to know when to stop it because it doesn't take many weeks before the addictive component cuts in. Yeah. You know? um, so this can be a real problem, but it is very important when a person does have severe pain that is relieved and we do have medications that do relieve pain and to try to tough it out I just don't understand what's behind that yeah. Mm. yeah we have a number of patients say they don't want to take pharmaceuticals and often they're the patients that have done a lot of alternative medicine or perhaps done black salve and they've got these huge gaping fungating wounds mm. which must be incredibly painful mm. and uh, I just it's beyond me to know why people have such a block against managing pain well. I think it's the fear of addiction. 
and the association of opiates with heroin. And right. uh, yeah, the, uh, the opium smokers from China, you know, mm. the opium dens and all, all the concepts to do with that. But they are an appropriate group of drugs to use. Also for nerve-related pain, there are drugs that work for that, Lyrica, Gabapentin. Um, and yeah, there's, we also know, I was watching a program on TV the other night, where we know that pain, the actual experience of pain, is very much determined by the person's mental state. If a person is very unhappy, sad, miserable, their level of pain that they're experiencing will be much worse. Whereas if they're watching a comedy film or something good is happening, they'll be distracted and their ex actual experience of pain will be less. So teaching patients how to actually, mm. you know, um, brain tricks mm. of how to actually deal with pain as well as with the drugs. Mixing comedy and opiates, I like it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Good solution. Um, Bruce, we've been doing some consults together. Um, I'd like you to talk about the stories that go with those and what you've observed as a conventional GP being in consultation with someone like myself and a patient. Yes, well, recently you've been coming to my rooms um, and sharing my rooms with me, which has been wonderful, um, with some patients. I've come in on the, on the Wednesday when I don't normally work and seen patients and recently I had a patient I've been looking after for some time who, who'd had major alcohol problems and mental health problems and she had a breast screen done which showed that she had a breast cancer there and so she came to me with that um, and immediately I called in Grace to have a, a joint session with her. Now this meant that she then had various options as to which way she could go um, and together um, I think we have been able to achieve a much better outcome for this person as far as the management. She's been lucky in that it's quite a well differentiated tumour. The tumour has been completely removed but interestingly she, was, she has previously been one of the alternative crowd <laughs> and very much against Western medicine um, to some degree and I talked to her about it the other day and she's actually complying very well making very good choices with what's happening and I asked her what has caused her to change and she said well actually meeting you two and working with the two of you and seeing how you do things together and having it all explained to me in detail and spending time and I now do understand she said because I decided that I was definitely going to have radi radiotherapy if required but I was not going to have chemotherapy now the concept <laughs> so in, in the alternative world the concept of chemotherapy is that it will make you very 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 sick um, and doctors are really not interested in you particularly and they're just out to make money anyway and it's big pharma actually making big money. Um, chemotherapy has changed and evolved a lot especially over the last 20 years and we're seeing new drugs come out every day which are attacking one specific component of the cancer cell whereas the old chemotherapy was attacking rapidly dividing cells right throughout the whole body mm. so therefore the hair fell out and the bone marrow was suppressed and all that sort of thing. Yeah. 
So um, chemotherapy is a broad term. Um, it's changed. It's changed very much. Um, and it is time for people to get past this concept that, you know, it is necessarily going to be terribly harmful and it's going to be terribly painful. Yeah, that's yeah. good Good to hear for a lot of our, um, our particular listeners. Mm. Um, the thing I found with one of the other consults that we did was a lot of patient anxiety comes from they've got to go home, they've got to ring up this specialist and that specialist, or they have to think they've got to go here and there to get a referral, and it all gets too hard, mm. and therefore they don't do anything, mm. and they let things go. So one of the things I noticed was we got action very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. It, ha it happened very, very quickly. And the, the, the patient had the surgery... Um, and came back, and the follow-up has been, you know, I only saw it yesterday, um, and we have most of the, the pathology back, and it's looking very good, and it looks as though radiotherapy may be all that's required at this stage in close follow-up. Um, and then um, the other patient that we saw, who was that, that, that was the other, that was almost blew me away, <laughs> the patient who's come back from Germany, and he had cancer of the bowel with secondaries in his liver, He's had various treatments over there, and he came, and we had a joint consultation. And the interesting thing was that there, there were things that you could do, Grace, that you thought about, that I would, would not have crossed my mind, and vice versa. <laughs> <And> so, so <laughs> it's so good. Over this consultation that lasted an hour with the patient there, um, we kept changing where we were, <laughs> I was sitting in my chair and then you were sitting in my chair and holding the fort and doing your bit and then I was then writing the referral through and ringing up people, speaking mm -hmm. to people, asking questions. I was learning in the process as, as, as I still do at 70 years of age. <laughs> um, and I think the patient found that very helpful. Yeah. Yep, and that's been the feedback. The patient did find that exceptionally helpful. Mm. So um, I think we're looking at a new model here ourselves, uh, Bruce, and uh, tomorrow you're off for a period of time, a nice holiday for yourself. Yes, I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Greek yeah, Greek island's fantastic. Mm. We've come to the end of our Navigating the Cancer Maze today, and I'd like to very sincerely thank Dr. Bruce Whelan for giving us a time to uh, uh, mm. make this recording today, because you won't be here to do it live tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> and we're sitting on my yacht where I live. <laughs> I, I, a bit different to most. That's the first time I've ever recorded on a yacht, so <laughs> there's a first. Okay, wish you a lovely trip, Bruce. Thank you, Grace. And right. uh, bye to all the listeners. See you next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon, U.S. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, Cancer is not something you have to face alone. Oh,